Turn with me, if you would, to the uh, book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to look for a little while about God's power to make a, a difference or God's power to change. God's power to change. Aren't you glad that God has a power to change? I sure am too. Hallelujah. God can do it. He did it in this man's life. We're going to look a little bit at this morning for a few minutes. Acts chapter 9, we're going to start reading in verse 1. It says, And Paul, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if any be found any of this way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Kind of sounds like Christmas time, doesn't it? Verse 4, And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Paul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And he said unto the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas of one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him that he might receive sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard of by many things, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my sake. This apostle Paul, or Saul, if you will, comes first to our notice at the death of Stephen. That's when we first start picking up this man. And he is the one who's standing on the fringe, and he's the one where they bring their cloaks to, their outer garments, their coats, and they lay them down at his feet, and he's standing there witnessing Stephen's stoning, and what a horrendous sight that must have been for him. And Saul, or Paul, the, the combination of the terms, Saul and Paul, this man is standing on the fringe of this maddening crowd, this political crowd, who are a group of political activists doing the work of the church in the political realm. And he starts to be noticed as one of the political elite of his day. He starts to be one of the in crowd. They start to pay notice to him. The Democrats and the Republicans are looking for somebody to start rising up, that they can start attaching all their importance to. And they're looking for, uh, in our day, for men like this. And they were looking then for men who would go along with the system. And we see from past events as we read into this little scenario that leads up to this story, how during this time, the working of men were strong in the earth. The working of Satan was strong in the earth, but the working of the Holy Spirit was also very strong in the earth. It was Paul's hatred of the church that he was seeing in so much of a manifest vision. In all of his hatred and persecution, he was seeing the Holy Spirit do some wonderful things around him and in that part of the country. He had seen the, the stoning of Stephen. And he had seen the church start to be sorely persecuted. This story right here is only taking place about three years after the death of Christ. He's seeing the church undergo great persecutions. And he's seeing the scattering of the church. When the political system starts coming against the church, 
that's one sign that God can use that to scatter his church. God wants us to go of our own free will. But if we won't do that, then he has to use circumstances to cause us to go out. That's what happens to any ministry when they start growing because they've gone out and then they get so big and they think, well, we've got enough. We've got it now. Let's just close the doors and let's just put real stringent incoming restrictions on people so you have a lot of problem to come in and we'll just draw into ourselves and we'll just have a glory hallelujah time and just we'll just mix with one another because those people really can't understand what we are and who we are they really can't understand our teaching so they're going to have to go through all of our dogmas and all of our doctrines just so that they can come in and know how to worship with us drawing in and God will come every time that starts to happen, either in the church universal, the Catholic church, which is the universal church of God. I'm not talking about the one in Rome. I'm talking about God's universal church. When the church starts drawing into itself, God will cause something to happen astronomical in the earth to cause his people to go forth and do what his word said in the, in the, in the interim, which was our command in the first place, to go forth. The last thing Jesus said before he rose to the Father, he says, go ye. He said, go ye. He didn't say, come and sit down or come and just enjoy the fellowship, although that's a wonderful part of it. But he says, go ye. When we start going, the political system does not like that. We were hearing this morning about the political activism that's coming against the pastors and other people like that. We haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg yet. Things are going to get serious in this country that we live because this country is rising up in the face of God. It's taking its documents and its, and its posture in the world and it's saying, look how great we are. We'll use God as far as we want to and we'll set him on the, on the shelf in the other places. You can't do this. This nation is no longer under the authority of the Lord. When that happens, God is forced he is forced to take serious consequences. And Paul had been witnessing all of this great move of God. The preaching of the word in Samaria by Philip, how he went down and he preached Christ to them. He didn't go down and teach, tell them, say, boys, we've got a great church up there in Jerusalem. You guys ought to come on be with us. If you're not with us, you're not part of the in crowd. It says he went down and he preached Jesus unto them. That's what the church's commission is to do. It's not to plan and program separate institution. It's to go forth and preach Jesus into a world. And when that happens, you can look for literally all hell to break loose and come against the church. It will happen every time. And Philip went down and he saw through his ministry, the unclean spirits come out of people and they saw miracles of all types. He saw the possessed delivered of all their constraints and binding. He saw everyone that was sick and infirmed and ill and diseased. He saw them heal those who would come to him for ministry. They saw great things done in that area. Many, many miracles. The greatest of which was salvation and salvation swept through that place. A revival swept through it. But the scriptures seem to indicate that after the revival had taken place and the miracles had taken place and all the great wonders in the church had taken place, all of that was operating. But these people hadn't yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what the scriptures seem to indicate. And they sent down to there to those people. They sent Peter and John into the city of Samaria. And when they had preached unto them, they laid hands on them and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and additional revival broke out in that place. And Philip journeyed as he journeyed. This is something, things that Paul was seeing as Philip journeyed from there. He saw eunuch of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he ministered unto him Christ and him crucified. And the gospel continued to be spread through this ministry of Philip unto this eunuch of Candace, of the Ethiopians. Now, this Ethiopia that we talk about here, you can't, you can't lock it into that little country of Ethiopia because that's not it. Ethiopia then encompassed all of the southeastern peninsula of the Arabian Peninsula. 
It encompassed the northern part of Africa and the northeastern part of Africa, a great mighty kingdom. And through one man, that whole gospel swept out of, into that land and the word of God was propagated. And Paul had been seeing this, or Saul had been seeing this, if you will. And he was aware of it. And yet, in spite of seeing all of this, that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He had seen all this. It wasn't done in a closet. God said none of his works are ever done in a closet. The Holy Ghost is going to ensure that what happens in his church gets out. He's going to use people like you, people like me, to testify when we have healings at the altar, when we have prophecy that, that stirs heart, when we have tongues and interpretation. We just don't need to say, oh, isn't that great? Praise God. We need to go out and say, let me tell you what God spoke to his people in prophetic words today. That's the way this thing gets propagated when we share our excitement with the world and when we see it. And Paul had seen all of that, or the man Saul had seen all of that. And yet, and yet, he went breathing out all threatenings and slaughter. He went into the synagogues and drug them out of there and by knife point forced them to renounce everything that they believed. I'm telling you, just like Dr. Ferentini was saying this morning, that is just a prelude of things to come. We're going to see, I predict, in my lifetime and in your lifetime, armed men in the form of police or soldiers walking into churches and physically, as we've already seen in types there and in small little renderings, seeing congregations ejected out of the church because they are preaching Christ and his miracles. We need to be warning the world. I'm sorry, my Baptist friends. It's not all love. It's warnings too. It's not just look good, dress up, smell good, come in, sing a few songs, and go out for those who have that type of eulogy in their church. It's not that. It's the power and the anointing of the Holy Ghost that you've got to have in your family and in your life on Monday morning and Tuesday night, Thursday afternoon, Friday at midnight, Saturday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's got to be all-encompassing. It's got to be a way of life or we're going to have problems and there'll be a time when they'll walk into the church and they'll stick a gun in somebody's head and say, if you don't renounce this person called Jesus, I will kill you right here, and they will be serious. And many Jews renounce the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the synagogue. It's what it says. It's what it says. For the fear of a few moments of inconvenience or physical pain, but in spite of all of this, the church was dispersing and mighty things was being done. And Paul had been witnessing all of this. And yet, it said, and yet, the little conjunction, yet, in spite of it, he was aware of it. The Holy Ghost had been dealing with him about it. He knew what he was doing and he was drawn toward the political arena of being one of the boys. Or he was drawn toward the God of his fathers. And yet, it said, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughters and carrying those out. You see, God will allow only so much. And then he will act. God will only allow any person, group of people, country, nation, world to go so far. And then he will react. Some may disagree with me. That's all right. I believe that some preachers will refuse to say that AIDS is of God. Now, I know I'm not talking about the, the, the part of it that infirms people, but I believe God, when men go so far in their evil and they won't hear and they want medical science to pr produce healing qualities so that they can continue in their sin. I think God said sometimes says that's enough and he allows these things. He withholds his cure. He withholds his word of wisdom to those doctors and those scientists because there's no answer for that thing. And I believe it's part of the judgment of God that's falling on those who have a reprobate mind and who won't hear. Now that's strong and I stand on that statement. We do serve a God of love, and we do serve a God who's infinite compassion. 
but that there are certain things happen, and at times he tells us in his word, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of it. God says, that's enough, Paul. And he demands on that Damascus road a consideration out of that man. He demands a, an accounting. Verse 9-3 says, as, as he, Paul, journeyed, he came near Damascus. And it says, and suddenly, God had been speaking to him for a long time. But he wouldn't do it the easy way. So God had to do it suddenly. And that's the way he comes. And this light of God knocked Paul to the ground. And it shone upon his sins. And when it shined into his eyes, it illuminated his soul. And the voice of God spoke to him. And he says, why are you persecuting me? I, Jesus. I, Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting these people? Why did he say, because you're going into the people's synagogues. You're going into the people's houses and dragging them out. He said, you're doing unto the least of them. You are doing it unto me. God is inextricably involved in your circumstances. God has says his eyes are open and his ears are ever listening. His perception is always there. He's always conscious about you as a believer. He is always conscious about bringing people back to himself. And in a moment's time, lives can be changed forever as it was with Paul on this road. Do you remember back? You were going along and God had been dealing with you. And only God knows how he had been speaking to your heart at your particular set of circumstances. And you knew that you ought to be doing what something that you were not doing. And then all of a sudden, the light of God shined on you and your soul opened up and the illumination of your sins and the illumination of your imperfectness was shined on by his perfectness and his holiness. And you knew that there was a gulf there that was not crossable and all you had to do was listen to that voice. But that light was shining on you. Lord, what will you have me to do? That's the question God's looking for. Paul answered it. What do you want me to do? I believe you got saved right there on that road. I believe you got saved right there. I think his life got changed right there. I think it was right there that Saul died and Paul was reborn. Paul told Timothy later on, and who would be better able to speak to him except maybe the shepherds on the hill? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.16, God dwelleth in the light which no man can approach unto. You see, what happened on this road was God shined his light on Paul. The people didn't see it. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful facet? There's things about God we don't know how he can shine right in one person's eyes. We're starting to see it a little bit of it in the laser world. God focused that light right into Paul's eyes, and the corneas of his eyes were disintegrated. Disintegrated. Paul was a blind man. He just wasn't like somebody hits a little flash bulb in your eyes and for a while you see that blue dot that they advertised. Paul, his eyes were, were scarred and he was a blind man from that very moment. And Jesus would have to in three days restore a miracle work into his eyes so that he could see. His eyes were damaged beyond repair. Paul would have been a blind man for the rest of his life except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gave Paul three days in that city to do some introspection of his life. He gave him some time. You see, after salvation, that's when God can start really shining his light on you. As long as we're part of the mixed crowd out there and things are going and we don't have time to think, what can God say to us? God has to get us some time by ourselves, on our knees, helpless, before he can minister really to us. And I believe you have to do it all the time. I think it happens in every life. I think after salvation, then God really starts teaching you what he's all about. After we say, yes, Lord, what will you have me to do? And he reflected on his past, Paul did. And he reflected on his present set of circumstances. Have you ever been in a totally dark room, black room, no light that you could perceive, where you, where you couldn't feel your hand in front of your face? That's the only thing that I can ever use in this world to 
gain empathy with a person who is blind. That's the only feeling that I have to where I can empathize with them. And I think, my God, what a terrible, awful way to go through this life. And my heart goes out to every blind person. And especially those who have seen and their sight is taken away. My heart goes out to that. So Paul had a chance to reflect on his present circumstances. And he had a chance to reflect on what God was calling him to do. What God was calling him to do. You see, all of Paul's plans were now gone. The pretty people, the pretty politicians, they don't want the infirm person. They don't want the person whose bodies are twisted and, and withered away. They don't want those who are, who are blind unless they have a testimony to tell. They want them to be powdered and perfumed, dressed from Fifth Avenue. They don't have any place for the infirm. Aren't you glad that God does? Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that every person that the Lord saves, inside that person, a withered body is standing up straight. Inside of every person, the eyes that are blind are seeing. Inside of every person who's a little bit dim-witted, God gives enough vision that they have hope for the time when they'll be restored. The future commitment God called him to and all of Paul's plans were gone because God told him, he says, Arise and go into the city and it'll be told thee what thou must do. You see, right here, Paul didn't have all of God's plans. All he had was a next step. And he couldn't really even take that one. When God calls you and he calls you out so many times, or most of the time, I think almost all the time, we don't have much of God's plan. We've just got that next step. And you know, that's what God wants us to do. God doesn't want us running ahead of him or lagging behind him. In the New Testament, the Holy Ghost is one who's right there with us. He wants us to keep up. My mother used to tell me when I'd, we'd be out, she'd be out walking with some of the ladies in the cool of the evening. They used to walk back then. Three or four of the ladies would get together and they'd walk in the cool of the evening. We kids would, you know, be like fireflies dancing around them, you know, playing in front of them, around them, beside them. And if we got a little bit too far off the path, she'd say, all right, y'all, you're getting too far now, come on back. Or if we'd, if we'd tag too far behind, she'd say, you, you children, come on up here with us now. That's the way the Holy Spirit works us. He wants us to take, stay close around Him. Stay in step with Him, with what He's doing. And Paul's plans were gone. His will was gone. The only thing that God had showed him was the next step. And a man that Paul wouldn't have been caught dead with not very long before, this Ananias, wouldn't have been caught dead with the guy. If he'd have seen him before, he'd have been able to put him in prison. That's, that's his only dignity he'd have had with this fellow. And now this is the very guy that God's done. And Paul was, was been so happy to see him because God told him, I'm going to use him in your life. That's what Jesus said. He said, Paul had seen in a vision this man Ananias coming to lay hands on him. Paul knew that when this man came, that he had restoration for his sight. Hallelujah. That when he came, Paul knew that he had, that Ananias had, a, and had an answer for his problem. He had the anointing of God in his hands to lay upon him. That he had a new relationship because the first words that came out of Ananias' mouth when he walked into the man's presence was Brother Saul. That which was enemies are made close. This is what God does. I'm telling you, this is, this is a prefiguring type of a saint. God, God sends us forth and he'll speak to a heart and he'll send us forth and he'll put into their understanding that somebody is coming. Sometimes he'll even mention a name. Somebody's coming to minister to you. And what he's saying is, this person I'm sending to you, he's got the next step in your plan. He's got, he's got vision for you. He's got knowledge for you. He's got an anointing for you. He's got a plan for your life. He has a new relationship for you. He's got a new relationship. I'm glad for the closeness of the body of Christ. Because there is no closeness anywhere. Can I tell you something? The, the, the body of Christ should function closer than even the overall natural family. Many of our natural families can't get along. They're estranged, they're fighting among themselves. The family of God ought to be just like that. 
Oh, to be, that's what it is. That's, that's the plan God gave for us. That's the, that's the way he revealed all this, as a father figure over a family. And then he breaks it down. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the house, his, you know, the man. Sorry. The perfect family unit is a father and a mother and the children. Now, circumstances can cause that to be altered. I know that, and God can bless it. But God doesn't want a family broken up. He doesn't want mother taken away or father taken away or kids taken away. He wants that family to be close, to be close. And I think that's what we're going to see in the tribulation time. I think we're going to see our families come back together again in this land and around this world. You see, God uses people to minister to other people. He uses people in the family to minister to other people in the family. He uses people in the, in the family of God to minister to the family of God. In other words, God uses what you could call a chain reaction in his body to minister to people. And, and we don't have to be only this church. We're missing it if we think or any church thinks that they're the family of God. We're part of everybody else who names the name of Jesus. And he can minister to any of us at any time. He can take a baby and minister a deep theological truth to somebody with a Ph.D. That's the wonderful thing about God. He can, he can minister chain reactions across his, across his whole creation. Jesus saved Paul. And then he uses this man, Ananias, to come and minister to him. And later on, when Paul was, as I said, this is only about three years after Jesus had raised and in A.D. 58, when, uh, when Paul was standing at the council in Jerusalem being on trial, he went back and he talked about this man with great reverence. He talks about this being a pious man who was well thought of by all of the Jews. This man was not just a flash in the pan that God used here, this Ananias. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he was a prominent man of his day. Many people knew him. Many people were swayed by the fact that he went to minister to Paul and Paul spoke of him in the highest glowing terms. Chain reaction in the body of Christ. Let me just show you, let me just give you an example of how God can use chain reaction using some names that you know. This, this little example came to my understanding not too awful long ago and I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful description of how God can use. You just follow this. Life is not slipping up on God. Your circumstances, God's not surprised or shocked by your circumstances. The only thing that shocks God is when we don't act upon his word. The only thing that wounds his heart is not when we get involved in, in things that are, that are missing a little bit. What really wounds his heart is when we don't turn back to him and let him minister to us, either himself or using somebody else in the body of Christ. That's the way the thing is set up. Follow this. In 1858, a man called Edward Kimball, who was a New England school teacher, contacted a shoe clerk and led him to Christ, and this man's name was D.L. Moody. Now, in 1879, a pastor of a small New England church visited one of D.L. Moody's meetings and got revived or got turned on to the things that God is doing in his world at, world at that time. And his name was J. Wilbur Chapman. And J. Wilbur Chapman got involved with the YMCA, and he employed a young assistant who was a well-known baseball player of his day, and his name was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday held meetings across the country. And he went to Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was preaching there. And he got a group of businessmen turned on to God. And they started holding uh, uh, or sponsoring a series of evangelical meetings there in that area. And one of the evangelists that they brought to their meetings in this group of meetings was a man called Mordecai F. Ham. And in the evangelistic crusade of this Mr. Ham or Reverend Ham, there was a young man who, who committed his life to Christ. And in a moment, his life was changed. And this guy's name was Billy Graham. Isn't that, isn't that something? Way back there, almost 100 years ago, I don't believe that is circumstance, uh, just chance. I believe that this is orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And yet he gives us free ability to pick and choose. Isn't God something else? Israel thought they were doing their own thing, and God had them, had them working his plan all the time.
every plan of how God was going to create this world and people it and deal with the, the evil situations even before it was here, the fall through Adam, how he was going to reclaim his man, how he was going to work of reproduction and, and power through his church, how he was going to reestablish Christ, how he was going to reestablish the kingdom, how he was going to purge out all evil, how he was going to reestablish a perfect earth was all in the mind of God before he ever laid the first brick into this world. Your life did not slip up on God. Your circumstances didn't slip up on God. I'm telling you, God is aware of you. He's aware of what's happening in your life. Every one of these men I've just related to you, God, first of all, he got their attention. And then he asked them a question that they had to deal with, and he cleaned them up, and then he changed the direction of their life. Doesn't that sound like you and me? You were going along, minding your own business, you thought. And suddenly, Jesus spoke to you. He's still the one who speaks to hearts. And he asked you a question that you have to deal with and had to deal with. And then he started that cleaning up process. I wouldn't even ask you to go back in your mind before. I think, I think that's an unfair thing for anybody to ask a person to do is to go back. But just to reflect on how clean you feel. Now that God has washed you and filled you with his spirit. God doesn't want to fill a dirty vessel. We just have natural problems with eating something out of a plate that's been used, especially for years and years and years. How would you like to put the day's dinner that you're going to eat onto a plate that's had last year's food on it? <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that, would you? God doesn't either. He wants to clean your vessel so that the food that you produce can be fresh and be pleasant and people can eat of that. And God changed our directions the same as he changed all these men. And you see, when God changes a life, he doesn't change the past around that life. That's what a lot of Christians forget when they come to the Lord and we don't disciple them and tell them that, praise God, you made a decision for the Lord today. But in just a few moments, you're going to have to go back out into a world of people who will recognize you and they won't understand that something right away has happened in your life. When they see you from a distance or see that person from a distance, they're going to recognize them. They're going to have that same immediate reaction that they've always had to them until they get up close. God told Ananias to go to Paul. And he says, Lord, I don't, I'm going to paraphrase this. I don't want to go to this man. I've heard everything he's been doing. I've heard everything he's doing now. I've, I know his commission, the letters he carries of authority to come in this town of Damascus and do all these threatening things. I just don't want to go to this guy. I don't want to go to this guy. God said, you all go to him. You go to him. Isn't it amazing sometimes? You know, I, I think that God takes kind of special pleasure and joy and sending a reborn person back into that old environment that he was just in. They don't go back in there the same person. They don't go back with the same strengths and same weaknesses. They go back fortified and strengthened in the Lord. And I think God takes pleasure, even the joy in that, of sending even a baby back into a place. If we don't do anything as a baby Christian, except just sit there and, and let God, just the, the peace of God, smile at somebody. That just the, the morning before, the day before, was causing us a problem. Just sit there and smile at him. God can use a smile. He can use anything. Like Job. I preached that sermon one time before about God sitting up in heaven and he's talking to Satan and the other uh, angels there, the, the other gathering of the super angels. He looked at him and says, boy, Satan says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered him? Take a look at him. You could put your name in there. I believe God speaks your name before the heavenly host. I think sometime it'll quiet down a little bit and God will say, Shh, wait a minute now, wait a minute. I, I, want, I want to tell you something. You all, let, let me just show you something. Look at Corrine. Let, let, me, let me show you my servant. Have you considered my servant, Corrine? And Satan's coming against you sometime, Corrine. And you can't see the end from the beginning. You can't see the end for your mountains. And then you can say, by the anointing of the Holy Ghost, 
And by the power and the strength that he gives me, I am more than a conqueror. God's going to carry me through this. And I'm going to come out the other side victorious. I don't care what the pits of gates of hell look like. Jesus looks over and he says, shh, if you just hear what we're going, consider going. You can put your name in. I believe God does that. I believe he says, hey, Satan, you think you got it tough? Did you hear what she just said? Did you hear what they just, confession that she just made? How much faith she's got in me? Jesus told Paul, I'll show you great things. Ooh, glory. You see, before God asks anybody to do any great things for him, he starts instructing them. He starts teaching them before we get involved in the action process. He'll start teaching and instructing. And he says, Paul, I'm going to show him how great the things he must suffer for my sake. You see, it's this, this labor involves what we consider suffering if we look at it through the natural or even through the flesh or through the arm of the soul. Young pastors start out, and I hear it with where I served through the college, I would, never, I would never dampen their spirits. I would never, ever do that. But sometime when I talk to them, they're, they're alive with the enthusiasm of God. And they just saw the latest television from Orlando. Or they just caught the last program from Tulsa. Or up in Ohio, they just saw that wonderful ministry up there. And they're thinking, oh, I want that. I want, I want to be involved in one like that. And you would never tell them, brother, God might not. He might have another small church on the back road for you somewhere for a while. It might not always be the, back, the big church. I'll, I'll let Claude read a book that I had in my library about, from, about Victor Primeyer. He was a, if, I, if my mind, mind serves me right, he was an Assembly of God evangelist. Now, I could be wrong about that, but he was definitely an evangelist to Tibet. Spent 30 plus years in that place. In the first couple of years he was there, he buried his wife and his, new, and his young son, about 10 years old. And he had, to, he had to wait until the ground would thaw enough so that he could, so he could bare physically dig a hole. The ground was so hard, he couldn't bury them. And he left them there in that country. And he served that place for 30 plus years and never saw a dyna dynamic move of God. It won't always be the big church with the stained glass windows. And it doesn't have to be for us to have the joy of the Lord. The important thing is knowing that we are where God placed us. Having that knowledge. It won't always be ministering to the, to the perfume and the powder and, the, and those with the new suits on. Sometimes it won't smell too good. I shared the other night the paradox of being in the ministry is that you may be preaching to, to the saints of God in a beautiful environment and everything is wonderful and happy and joyous and you're with the saints and an hour later you can be in the dregs of society ministering to those who are wallowing in literally in their own vomit and in their own uh, earthly smells. It's not always easy to do. It's not always a downhill walk. Sometimes the hill is uphill. We'd like to teach it. Get saved and everything's going to be okay. Well, ultimately it is. But in the meantime, God has some, got something for you. It might not always even be what you'd like to have. Because the key to it is having our will coincide with His will. But I've, paint, I've painted the negative, but that I don't want to leave you with a negative. Because God will always keep a joy there. And there are those ministries that God will place us into. But the thing about it is that sometime we'll hold a big ministry up and a little ministry up. And the big pastors will tend to say, I had 20,000 last week. How many did you all have down there in Podunk? No, we had five. Oh, you five? Oh. When they all just say, five? How many did you have the month before? Well, I only had two. My wife and me went before. And that should cause them to do a jig. We ought to be rejoicing with the body of Christ. And if he says, if the person says, well, I had ten the month before and I only had five, then they ought to be willing to drop on their knees and pray together.
That's what this thing is about. Paul would tell the Philippians later on, for it is God which worketh in you. Sometime when the family doesn't understand, you think you think you can't have it. You think you can't stand it. It's God who's working in you. Sometime when those co-workers make the remarks and you think, I'm, I can't stand this place. I've got to get out of here. Let God use you. Sometime when you think you can't, you just don't feel like going and ministering. You just don't feel like it. You're, it's been a long day and you're tired and, and, and you're weary and all that couch looks good. And yet God raises up in need and says, I want you to go minister. It has never ceased one time in my life. It has never ceased to happen. When I would be at the end of a long day and I was looking forward so much to just being at home and yet a ministry need came up. When I went and did that, knowing that God had called me, as I went, the refreshing of the Lord came upon me. And when I got back, I was refreshed in God. I've even done it in the pulpit. I've done it. I have sometime walked to the edge of the platform and my body be racked with pain, be fighting cold and all that kind of thing, couldn't talk. I've had laryngitis to where I couldn't even speak. And if I'd have walked up to the pulpit, I'd have been talking kind of like this. And that's about as much as I could have gotten out. But when I stood into the pulpit and started standing on the Word of God, all of a sudden the voice started coming stronger and stronger, and the anointing of God kicks in. And God's not a respecter of persons. Because, you see, I had heard people testify about that before. And I had never had it until it happened to me the first time. But after he happened the first time, I knew that God will, will sustain and would empower what he asked us to do. For Paul told them, it, it's, uh, it is God's good will and pleasure to do in you that he's called you to do. And this is the way he phrased it. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's God's idea. What happened to Paul was God's idea, not Paul's idea. Job found out what the, that God would, could cause him to understand what he'd understand. The psalmist understood in Psalm 67 that God caused his face to shine. In other words, to radiate the joy of the Lord as it did Moses and that joy to be in the heart. Writer of Ecclesiastes says, God can cause you to ride upon the high places. I heard Kenneth Copeland took that literally and he, God gave him an airplane. You want to learn to fly? <laughs> no, that's not for everybody. Not literally. But it's for those who, is part, who are part of God's plan for it to operate literally. But just between me and you, I'd rather be on the high place with God in the spirit area than in the best airplane ever made. I want to walk and live in that high place with God. Isn't it something to be in the high place with God? When you're there, the things of this world end. Because what we're talking about is that deeper place of worship, that deeper place of praise. And sometimes that's why we'll say, make a sacrifice of praise. Make a sacrifice of worship. Get into it when you don't even feel like it. It'll take you deeper. It'll take you deeper in the Lord. And with these high places, it means God at that point will give you the deeper revelation of what his word says and who he is. He'll teach you more about himself. He told Jeremiah, I'll cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. Did you hear that? Did you really hear what I just read to you? You can take that one passage of scripture alone and change your life. And it'll stop being just church. And it'll start being a way of life. Jeremiah 15, 11, I will cause your enemy, put your name in there, to entreat thee well in the time of the evil and in the time of affliction. See, before God asks you to serve him, he instructs you. But then, after instruction, God will ask for service. Starts out, Jesus said, render unto God the things that are God's. 
That's the premise we come into this thing called salvation with because it can never happen prior to regeneration. There's no way that an unregenerated man can render anything to God. Only the redeemed of God can render unto God. Then Paul told the Romans, he says, bring forth fruit. Bring forth fruit. God asks you in your service to bring forth fruit. It's not only the pastoral staff. It's the body of Christ with God getting the glory. Fruit, fruit that people can, can sustain on. Some people never eat meat. They just eat fruit and vegetables. God asks for service. Peter found it out. He admonishes the body of Christ to live according to God in the spirit, not in the soul. If there's one message I'd like to give to the body of Christ is forget about your body. Forget about your soul. Let your spirit man start getting in tune with God and all the rest of it will fall in line. All that other warfare about what we're going to do with the flesh where we're going to lay it down and where we're going to raise it up, what we're going to clothe it with, what we're going to feed it, how it's going to look. All of these things will naturally fall in line. If, as Peter said, live according to God in the Spirit, our soul will reach out to the Spirit man for instruction because the Spirit will teach the soul. He says, give to them that ask thee. Give to them that ask thee. You see, the thing that a Christian has, let me tell you, the thing that a Christian has to give is not what you can take out of your wallet. It's not what you can take out of your hands and give to somebody. That's not the primary thing that you have to give. The primary thing that you, a Christian has to give after regeneration is they've got the word and they've got a witness. God will always, I don't care if you're one minute old in God, He'll give you at least John 3, 16. And He'll have a witness in your heart that you can share what God is for you. I used to be down all the time. I used to be plagued with all kind of doubt and indecision and warring against my mind all the time. got a joy and a hope that's fresh in me. Don't have it all completely together, but God's bringing it together. There's a joy in my testimony that we can share with the world. And we can share the word. God has a word of encouragement through you to somebody else. You see, God, like the title of this message, God's power is there to change your life. We're looking at it in this man, Paul, and we're bringing this to a close. The thing that we have to keep before us is that to work in the kingdom of God, and this is imperative that a Christian knows this in their understanding, that the things of God working according to God's plan in his kingdom will bring a blessing into your life. God will bless your life. Oh, no man, anything. Is that scripture? Owe no man anything. That's a scriptural truth that God wants us to adhere to. It is a command for Christians. It's a command for Christians to get out of the mountain of plastic, from behind the mountain of plastic. God doesn't want his people carrying around a burden of plastic debt. He doesn't want them pressed down by owing their soul to the company store. God wants his people to get out of debt and stay out of debt. Now, some take that to the extreme like they do everything else. When Satan starts, when God starts te teaching a truth, Satan will always try to carry it to an extreme if he can't do anything else. And therefore, some, some Christians will say, well, I, I'm not going to owe anything. I'm going to live, I'm going to go strictly by cash. Well, that's ridiculous. God's just talking about making good decisions and being able to fulfill on a moment's notice what, the, what those obligations call for. He's not talking about the fact that we can't have a home or drive a car. 
It's easy to, it's easy to take some of these to the extreme when you've got $100,000 in the bank. When your house is paid off and you're a millionaire, but God calls us to wisdom, unequal yokeness, to where we're not, where we're not in charge as the Holy Spirit tells us. Just like things, we should never get attached to anything to where if God asks us to, if God asks us to do something, we wouldn't be willing just to turn around, walk away from it. In this world, seeking the things of God. Owe no man anything. This is a command to the Christian is to get out from under these mountains of economic impression and depression. But you're going to tell you something. God also never commands us to do anything that he won't command himself to do. If he says, don't owe any man anything, God won't owe any man anything. And he'll give blessings into life, into those who are in the kingdom of God. He clearly spells this out. He says, I'll bless them who bless thee. And I'll cause thee to ride upon the high places. Isaiah spoke that to us. I'll make your seeds as the stars. Combat barrenness in, in lives. Ones who can't bear, he'll cause them to bear. The natural. He'll cause your seed. And of course, we know that the seed is the word of God. He'll cause you to have what you need to be able to cause the word of God to produce it in your life. If you need it, God will give it. If you desire it, and it's in accordance with his will, he'll produce it in your life. Seed, the labors of your service to God in the affairs of men are seed. Seed. For if these things be in you and abound, Peter says, they will make you. Make you. That we can, we can put in there, they'll, they'll complete you. They'll round you out. You won't be barren or you won't be unfruitful. I think Christians ought to be producing. I think we ought to be producing things. Producing things to give into people's lives. Producing word to give into people's lives. Producing new revelation to give into people's lives. Producing miracles to give into people's lives. Not unfruitful. They call unfruitful people barren, barren, barren. Jesus told them, my father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. He holds you there. All of your seed fruit are there in him, and they're there in you. Why don't you stand with me? Paul learned that God had the power to change, and he lived this a life of change. He learned on that road, just as you as have I, and I have learned, if we name the name of Jesus, just as we learn day by day as we hear that voice and we answer, Lord, what will you have me to do? He learned that God will ask us questions that we have to answer. He learned that God will lead and direct the paths of those who will. He learned that God will empower those to serve who will act upon that. And he learned that God will bless abundantly those who operate in accordance with his will. Some of our live services were cut short, such as this one, by the recording technicians. Sometime possibly because we moved into the altar service, or maybe it was a technical glitch. I feel, however, that the content in offering these contains thoughts that are so good and deep and have meaning to encourage and inform the hearer. So with that in mind, be blessed by these teachings. This is Dr. West praying my blessings upon you in Jesus' name.